0: Hey, everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl for June 18th, 2018, and I have a really special guest here today, uh, Dr. Mark Epstein. You may know him from his multiple books, which include the very latest, which uh, I highly recommend, Advice Not Given, I don't know if you can see the title there, Um, and also um, the others, Open to Desire, which I really like because it talks a lot about um, sort of the difference between desire and craving are clinging, and um, thoughts without a thinker, which is, who is this that is doing the thinking, or what is this, or what is this phenomenon known as thinking? Anyway, um, he is a psychiatrist in private practice in New York City, uh, author of a number of books, like I mentioned, uh, about the interface of Buddhism and psychotherapy, and his other books also include Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. Uh, psychotherapy without the self his newest work the trauma of everyday life will be published whoops this is old in august of 2013 but i read that he received received his undergraduate from harvard and is currently clinical assistant professor in the postdoctoral program in psychotherapy in new york university i don't know if that's old too bottom line is you're here in new york you're here with us right now on wise girl and i am really thrilled to uh be with you today so mark thank you for your time Thanks a lot, nice to be here. <laughs> Likewise. So, starting where we are, as we um, <laughs> often uh, do with mindfulness practice and just with the um, coming into presence, you have seen folks from all walks of life for decades, but you started with your own practical you know, inquiry um, by doing a retreat back in the day Um, from what I understand, from what you've shared during your teachings, and I would like for you to just start with um, a glimpse into what made you curious in the first place, what did you learn when you sat in your first extended retreat that then made you want to keep on going with this path and then share uh, this uh, version of Eastern and Western commingling uh, psychology to the world?
1: Sure, Well, um, initially, I wasn't really making any distinction between Eastern stuff and Western stuff in terms of what I was curious about. I think I was curious about myself. Uh, I had a very um, unclear picture of myself, uh, who I was, what I was, uh, where I was going. Uh, um, I had some vague sense that therapy uh, might be helpful or that I might be uh, drawn to doing that kind of work, but, um, but I didn't really know what that kind of work was. So, uh, but I was, um, I was interested in, in psychology and uh, sort of orienting myself that way. And I got pulled into a, a, a history of religion class in my first semester in college. So I was, you know, 18 years old. Um, Uh, I had no intention of taking that course. I wasn't interested in religion. I grew up in a kind of uh, atheistic, academic, Jewish family, but without much Judaism. But the Buddhism in that course, there was something there that spoke to me uh, right away. So I latched on to Buddhism as a kind of psychology of the mind, uh, hoping that it would help me understand myself and my own anxiety, I think, more. Uh, And that led me... Um, that led me various places that maybe we can talk about. It led me to writing uh, all of these books. But, um, but I wasn't only interested in uh, Buddhism or in meditation or in mindfulness. I was also drawn to Western psychotherapy and needed it uh, and made use of it. So I'm, I've been interested uh, for all these decades, as you put it, uh, in uh, how those two traditions can, uh, uh, can commingle and help each other. So that, that's where I'm coming from.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, and I really do think that they are um, beautifully interwoven uh, in terms of uh, the tapestry of well-being, uh, that there are some things that one can offer that the other can't, and some things that are more mm, sort of explained via science, uh, if you will, that sometimes yeah. are inexplicable um, yeah. in a uh, spiritual realm.
1: I'm not sure they're so interwoven yet. I, I think we're sort of at the beginning of the, of even the two traditions talking to each other. That That's what I found in my, in my work. People are very interested The the Western Uh, psychology world is actually very interested in Buddhism the Buddhists are not so interested in psychotherapy necessarily they they're still coming from a place where they think they uh, they are a complete path you know kind of the way the psychoanalysts were in the 1950s so uh, sometimes I have to talk to them about their personal lives you know
0: Well, you know, it's so funny because I have to share this because we're both in New York City, and I've had the benefit of uh, so many wonderful teachers here uh, from different traditions, whether it's in New. Indo-Tibetan or Theravadin, or, you know, more the Mahayana tradition, whatever. I, I've had a real uh, rich experience. And um, some of the teachers I find to be very embodied and other ones I feel to be completely sort of, you know, able to sort of recite scripture as it will, but don't really feel as though they're actually able to come into presence. Um, and so I, I feel like, you know, what you're speaking to kind of can speak to some of that
1: yeah well, even the embodied ones uh, uh, have their own uh, uh, have their own issues uh, so uh, it 's easy to think that the spiritual thing will cure uh, everything uh, but uh, having been around now for a while uh, and uh, gotten to know, I feel very privileged that i 've gotten to know a lot of the uh, uh, spiritual teachers on a personal level so i so I can see. You know more intimately what what people are 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 struggling with, and um, that's been very helpful for me. And
0: it's and it's the human path. So we all have these things. It's and one of the things that I, yeah. I do find that's um, sort of very overtly um, sort of analogous, if you will, is greed, hatred, and aversion on the uh, side of the greed, Buddhist. Life, greed, hatred, you know, and delusion. Greed, hatred, excuse me, and
1: delusion. Excuse me. Greed, yeah. hatred, hatred, and aversion, and aversion are, are, aversion are like, say, you know. Different ways. They're not the same, but they're trying to say the same thing. Yeah. Right,
0: right. The, so so let's just put it this way. The pull-in, the push-away, yes. and the zoning. Yes. That's exactly. sort of the, 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 the Buddhist orientation. And then to do it with the um, attachment theory version in, uh, you know, John Bowlby, Mary Ainsworth, yeah, psychological Western, you know, approach. Yeah. It, ambivalent, avoidant, and disorganized, if you're talking about insecure attachment, uh, as opposed to secure attachment, which we could or not get into, but the same energies are there of hungry ghost, I can't get enough, I want more of something, whatever that might be, or you know what, I'm just going to mm, check out, or I'm going to uh, kind of hold it all in, so to speak, that there are these different energies that seem to parallel one another as described in these two very different systems.
1: Yeah, well, the whole, the whole question of attachment is one that people are still mulling over, you know, because in the Buddhist world, uh, attachment is sort of like a, uh, a no-no. Um, it's got a bad name, but in the psychotherapy world, attachment is really important because we're so focused on what happens in the early years of life. And if the baby, if the infant, if the child doesn't make a good enough attachment to the parent, then they're sort of lost, you know, or confused, uh, or from the Buddhist side, we might say diluted. So I've spent a lot of my time trying to figure out, you know, is is the attachment that the therapists are talking about the same attachment that the Buddhists are talking about? Is the desire that uh, the Buddhists are saying is bad, the... uh, you know the same desire that we're sort of cultivating in a in a healthy uh, personality and psychotherapy is the ego. You know what is the ego? Do we want it? Do we need it? Or do we not need it? So um, uh, those those are those have occupied me for uh, for a long time trying to figure all of that out.
0: Well, one of your colleagues that you were teaching with when I saw you about a month ago, uh, Sharon Salberg. I was. Um, uh, She was teaching with Dan Siegel the other day, and uh, I was with them for that day, and one of the things that she said with him, because he does a lot of attachment research and whatnot, um, what she seemed to say was, and I'm paraphrasing here, was that it seems as though in Buddhist, uh, in Western psychology, to have secure attachment would be analogous to having non-attachment in Buddhist psychology.
1: Uh, well, that's that's an interesting way for her to frame it. Um, it uh, may, yeah, maybe I, I might think to have secure attachment from a Western point of view makes uh, meditation a little bit easier. Uh, you know, you you uh, uh, you might have to face less intense uh, kind of anxiety or panic within your own body and mind uh, when you're sitting when you're sitting with yourself uh but very few people really have secure attachment in my experience i talked about sharon in the in the advice not given book i uh sharon wrote what when one of her books uh, called faith she wrote very very personally which most of the buddhist teachers don't do and uh, and i that's my favorite thing of her she wrote about uh, when she was a little girl and uh, uh, she was sitting with her mother and her mother started to hemorrhage. Uh, uh, Sharon was about nine years old and dressed in her ballerina costume and watching their favorite show on TV and her mother started to hemorrhage and Sharon had to call a doctor and her mother got rushed out in an ambulance and died and Sharon never saw her again and her father uh, had mental health issues and uh, Uh, tried to kill himself and, you know, she was raised by uh, her grandparents. So Sharon is like a beautiful example of uh, insecure attachment as we talk about it in Western psychotherapy, because of uh, all the beings, important beings in her life that she lost. And she writes about how confused she was on the inside. Uh, how uh, insecure and, uh, you know, low self-esteem, all of that kind of language, and how Buddhism that she also found early helped her uh, develop a kind of compassion for herself uh, and uh, ability to be with herself in a real way. She talked about how she, in order to survive, which is common in trauma, she had to shut uh, the door on herself; she had to close herself off from any kind of feeling—not not just the uh, traumatic ones—and that Buddhism actually helped her open to herself in a real way. So um, uh, she she knows what she's talking about.
0: Absolutely. Um, again, you know, it's often said that the 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 crack is where the light gets in, right? I mean that that, that our trauma yeah. Has yeah. ways that we have to
1: open way yeah
0: um, we wouldn't wish it on anyone and yet you know no, but it happens to
1: everyone that's the you, you know I always say uh, if you 're not suffering from post traumatic stress disorder you 're suffering from pre traumatic stress disorder because <laughs> old age illness and death if if nothing else you know will uh, will come sometime so we're all we're all a little scared of that
0: yeah, well, you started this by saying that you know your own anxiety brought you into the uh, meditation retreat, and yeah. I think that's you know based on a lot of things, just the way the world has continued to move rapidly. I think George Mumford says we're like 10 years ahead of what our brains can actually like sort of process because of our technology and all this stuff so that we're, we're moving so rapidly. It's just really hard to just sort of know how to assimilate everything. And yet, with also with Buddhism, one of the things that I found in terms of my own traumas and my own recovery and my own ability to kind of be... Present that's been really profound for me was this whole concept of basic goodness and this whole idea of um, having what Dan Siegel would call in mathematical terms, I think, the plane of possibility um, and just having this opportunity where when we are looking at things with the basis of, as some would say, Buddha nature or something like that, and we're looking at it through the lens of conditioning programming or adaptive behavior, in psychological terms, affect or whatnot, that we can work to improve, switch, change, see differently, relate to these things coming from this presence of basic goodness, as opposed to this shame state spiral of, I am the bad person, I am everything that's wrong, it's all me, as opposed to, oh, I learned these things for survival, and there's still the me here that when i start to take away these things the actual presence can kind of come to fruition or shining or whatever you want to say can you speak a little bit about that in terms of
1: well I i think what you're saying is right that the the great gift of the buddhist view of the human mind is that there is basic goodness uh and that 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 some capacity to love Uh, and to uh, be in a state of equanimity is really intrinsic to our nature. And uh, uh, we see that most clearly in regular life in the relationship of a parent uh, to an infant, that that capacity to care for another uh, you know is instinctive it, it it comes immediately there are very very few mothers, even very few fathers when when actually in the presence of a baby uh, won 't feel that kind of response so there 's something there 's some link there. Uh, to what the Buddha found in himself and declared was present in everyone, but that but that each person had to find it in themselves. That he couldn't, like, you know, just point to it and uh, make you feel it. So there's some education, there's some schooling, there's some reason that we, uh, from the Buddhist view, incarnate into this human form, you, you know, so that we can. Uh, discover ultimately what our true nature is the the ego you know the buddhist ego and even the western psychoanalytic ego doesn't really understand you, you know what we're doing here the the ego grows out of uh you know, when we're about three years old, four years old, and the um, mental apparatus uh, starts to kick in so that we can think about who we are in relationship to the world. You know, the ego comes out of the intellect and is trying to understand all the time, like what to do, uh, how to survive, uh, how to regulate one's own inner states with the demands that come from the external world, parents, school, etc. So the, the ego is like born of confusion and supported by the intellect, and we need it, but, um, uh, but uh, we rely on it too much. We think that's who we are. The, uh, the great thing about Buddhism, I found, was that it suggested, oh, you're not who you think you are. You know, it said that to me. And, uh, and that became something that somehow opened doors for me into uh, who I might be if I wasn't who I thought I was, you know.
0: Yeah, no, I love that, and I love how it's all going back to direct experience, right? So, from the Buddhist perspective, it's more like, listen, don't take my word for it. See if you can't find within yourself that opening when your heart has just been there and been available, or you know, if you don't have some aspect of that that maybe we pass by because of our negativity bias or our ego or whatever it is that we forget to remember that that's also a part of us.
1: Well, then that becomes something that that a therapist can use you know, with another person in therapy, because if a therapist has that basic view, you know, it's sort of akin to, I think what Jung might've been talking about about, about individuation, that we we all have a path and that, uh, but we don't know, we don't know what that path really is. We can only discover it kind of one step at a time, but the more we tap into uh, what might be linked to that fundamental nature, You know, the more we let that guide us, even if we can't quite know what that is, that can help uh, keep us on whatever that path is that we have to discover, if that makes any sense at all. That's how I think about it as a therapist. You know, when I'm sitting with somebody, uh, I can kind of feel who they might be if they let go of some of the defenses that they're using to, you know, cope with uh, who they think they are.
0: Yeah, I find that so beautiful. And and for some, you know, um, there's more of this sort of direct path and there's others more of the the, the incremental path, if you will, as they would talk about in, in in Buddhism, right? Like more of the Indo-Tibetan tradition sometimes versus the um, perhaps Theravadan traditions. And I think therapy can often be that way or somebody can have an insight or have a realization or as Oprah would say, an aha moment where you kind of like things click a little bit. And then sometimes, you know, it just takes this sort of like, gradual reminder and it's not it's not binary it can be both and in the sense that you may have an insight and need the gradual reminder that like yes I'm basically good and I can be reminded sometimes when I get caught in you know what Tara would say the trance of unworthiness or something Tara Brock. Um, you, you mentioned uh, this business about being curious and you were curious about not only your own Um, situation, Uh, but, you know, obviously about other people, because you've dedicated your life to that. Can you talk about the role of curiosity uh, and openness in not only therapy, but in the way in which it keeps us um, more in the moment and the present in terms of what actually is really happening, as opposed to what may have already happened or what we fear might happen?
1: Well, I, I had a conversation once with uh, Joseph Goldstein, who's uh, been my primary Buddhist teacher, uh, you know, American Western Buddhist teacher, but who I've known for 40 years or so now. And um, I was heading into a week-long silent meditation retreat that I've been trying to do uh, uh, every year or so since my kids got old enough uh, that I could leave them for that long. Uh, and um uh, Joseph has a house that's right near the retreat center where I was going, and I stopped in to see him before, you know, going into the silence. And um, I think I was a little bit apprehensive uh, going into the retreat. And uh, I said to him, uh, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not exactly excited to be, uh, you know, going into this environment, uh, but uh, I'm not so scared either. I don't quite know what word to put on it. And he said, uh, how about curious? uh and i always remembered that it it really helped me as i went in because it's a little scary even after doing it a lot you're going to be alone with your own mind for uh x number of days um but this sense that there's always discoveries to be made uh either within oneself or in the presence of another person you know that we never really know we never really know everything uh, and we can always be surprised. That's a wonderful, uh, that's like looking, looking at art, or, or listening to music, you know, I think that's a lot what, uh, what culture gives us in, an, in another way that it, it um, taps into that sense of curiosity, that I think is part of uh, what the Buddha is also talking about
0: yeah you said two things there that i want to circle back on um one is i actually just sat with joseph in february which was really terrific and yeah um, that's
1: a wonderful opportunity
0: it it was and i was yeah. very grateful to to do that yeah, and, he comes
1: alive in those environments so he you know he really loves it so much
0: well he's been so dedicated to it again for his own um i mean he started on his own path so he's relating uh the idea of watching the mind and then, you know, watching your thoughts and then, you know, I mean, I remember um, in our interview, uh, this is just a personal anecdote, in February, just a couple months ago, I was kind of feeling, I don't know, like pretty, pretty balanced and, you know, pretty okay during the retreat. And um, it sort of came down to like, right, so what is this all about? And then we were like, yeah, the knowing. And then it was like, okay, bye. (laughs) And so, you know. What do you mean?
1: What do you mean it came down to the knowing?
0: Sort of like in a non-dual way, right? Yeah, what do you mean? Well, so this would be more the idea of that out of the consciousness comes the mind, comes the, you know, comes the body-mind. And so um, that that there isn't really the... There's only the, you know, the, the known and the knowing meaning. It's matter in matter mind, this, this whole uh-huh. thing, you know, the yin and the yang, so to speak. But the idea of having this um, presence, as I was saying earlier, that kind of is that of which our experience is made. So we can't have experience without the sense doors of seeing, touching, feeling, whatever. What is awareness? Homo sapiens sapien, the one who is aware that they're aware. And then when you're aware of that, that mindful witnessing like I can see my stuff, then who is even that or what is even that? And then the knowing is, to me, like just sort of a placeholder for this mystery, which we can't even really get into. So when you say, what do you mean? I don't know. It's a bunch of garbage. It's a garbledy duck. But I kind of know what I mean. I don't know if you know what I mean, but it's sort of like a big question mark. But I guess that's why we stay curious. I don't know.
1: Well, it was Joseph who, who brought that up, wasn't it? The knowing? The knowing.
0: Yes and no. Um,
1: yeah. He likes yes. to go there. He likes to go there. Like the, the knowing, the, what is the knowing capacity of the mind when you're sitting in meditation, you know, and watching yourself at a certain point the thing you're watching, which you think is you, starts to be like kind of repetitive and boring. You've seen it all before. But the, that which knows, whatever that is, you know, which maybe is consciousness or maybe is mind or maybe is Buddha nature, uh, But we don't really know what that is. That's really the, the ultimate mystery, I think, that the knowing exists. And does it die when we die, you know, or does the knowing continue in some way? Jo- uh, Joseph's all about that. He's trying to get, uh, you know, everything else out of the way until it's just you there knowing, you know, the, the sound or the, uh, the Zen, you know, slap or whatever it is. Um, so that he's, he's, he's leading there, I think. I, I would guess that's why that came up in your conversation.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it yeah, has
1: but to people don't really under, you know, it's confusing at the same time.
0: I wasn't confused, but I think it can be. You were. Confusing.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah,
0: because I mean, having followed like, you know, sort of some of the other folks like Sri Ramana Harshi and, you know, sort of uh, Rupert Spira or some of the, you know, sort of more on the philosophical realm. It circles back to what you were saying about art. And he says, you know, whatever consciousness is, it's the same as beauty or love, which is sort of the Bhakti tradition. It's sort of Who, you know, who says that? Uh, Rupert Uh Spire, but he's, you know, a student of, he's a non-dual teacher, and and what I love about that is, is that it's very much how we can approach this inexplicable thing, I'll just call it the mystery, the question mark, the knowing, Uh whatever you want to call it, presence, I don't know, Buddha nature, from these different angles, uh, depending on what's your experience,
1: you know? yeah. Yeah, well, the thing about all of us is we're, we're not enlightened. Uh, and so we really don't know, you know, so at a certain point, we're taking somebody's word for something.
0: Have you had an experience though where you felt that because I've also heard that enlightenment, uh, really, what a lot of teachers say is just small moments, many times that there's just moments of enlightenment. Is that ever been your experience or not so much? That's
1: never been my experience. No, <laughs> no I've heard the teachers say that. I don't know if it's their experience either.
0: Okay. I don't know. I'm, I'm asking. Yeah. I'm, throwing, I'm throwing this out there. You've got decades on on me and on us. No. But, but I think it's, it's always good to kind of know sort of what's out there. I mean, we couldn't get to the mood. Well, my,
1: my favorite story about that comes from my friend, uh, Robert Thurman, you know, who's a professor. You you were there when I was teaching with him. His his hero, his Buddhist hero is, uh, comes from the 14th century in Tibet, uh, uh, Sangkhapa, the founder of the Yellow Hat School of Buddhism that the Dalai Lama now embodies. And uh, he, Bob, tells this story about uh, Sangkhapa at the moment of his enlightenment what he, in his enlightenment poem, you know, his spontaneous expression in the aftermath of his uh, enlightenment experience of his awakening, he said, oh, it's exactly the opposite of what I thought it was going to be. So uh, uh, Bob always says, so what do you think enlightenment is? You know, because, you know, again, like I was saying, none of us are enlightened. So how do you imagine it? And then what would be the exact opposite of how you're imagining it? Uh, so that, that's that 's an interesting way to approach it yeah, we, I, I think a lot of us think that enlightenment is oh we 're finally like in the zone you know we're finally we 're like going to some uh, exquisite place you know that is not here, where we 're finally enlightened, and it, so what what would the opposite of that be
0: Just being exactly where you are being able to not think that everything was so catastrophic i don 't know.
1: Like <laughs> <laughs> something like that. No, it might be. It's some it's some kind of relational something where yeah. where you start to experience it experience yourself not as a problem, but uh, as part of the solution, you know?
0: <laughs> not as a problem. Experiencing yourself not as a problem. I love that. And you were speaking earlier about um, your role as a, as, a, as a clinician, as a therapist, and you were alluding to sort of the resonance and the ability to be present with someone in terms of working with some of that. Can you talk about the relational aspect of the ways in which uh, therapy, and maybe even Buddhist teachers, like you were mentioning Joseph, how that can really help someone sort of feel like ah, they're, you know, whatever, I'm loved. And, you know, with that love, that sort of gas in the tank to kind of keep going.
1: Yeah, I don't think about it so much as, uh, yes, I'm loved, but uh, more that I'm capable of love. Uh, I I, I think that's, um, uh, people, you know, people want to be loved by their therapist, of course, and they, they, they want to be affirmed by the therapist, that there's a natural thing in all of us that's seeking uh, uh, affirmation and seeking relationships. So in therapy uh, is very important in looking at that, helping with that. But I, but I think to um, to create a space in therapy or even in meditation where our own inherent capacity uh, for love starts to manifest, that, that that's the most reassuring thing that can happen, I, I think.
0: And and I think that would be back to the Buddhism part. Um, I think one of the main teachings was, or one of the primary teachings is generosity. And uh, and that means obviously does in many ways have a, a generous heart toward yourself and others, not just to others, but you know, to be as you were saying earlier, that the, cuts the compassion toward, toward self, toward one being on the path and sometimes being off the path and then being on the path.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, they have, they, uh, the Buddhist thing is all about balance, which I've always really liked. So the the balance of wisdom and compassion, you know, that's like you hold the two things. So then they talk about idiot compassion, you know, where uh, you've cultivated the uh, the generosity, but without the wisdom. And... That's in uh, therapy terms, we see that in, in what's, what's called um, enabling relationships, you know, around addiction a lot or people who uh, self-sacrifice maybe too much uh, in the hopes that just by being generous, just by being loving, they can fix everything. And um, that's a common, I've seen that, uh, I saw it in myself even as a therapist, but you see that in people who go into therapy a lot, That. Um, Uh, feeling like if they can just give that kind of loving awareness, loving attention to the client, that that should be enough. And uh, unfortunately it it turns out not to be, you know, you need some degree of uh, uh, confrontation and clarification and uh, um, uh, wisdom. And if you're really going to help somebody or if you're going to help somebody help themselves.
0: Right. I love that because oftentimes it seems as though in my experience with therapy, some of the best parts of um, working with the therapist have been sort of like that reparenting. I mean, you learn to reparent yourself eventually, but that you're kind of holding the space where the person is boundaryed, right? So they have like, a bit like you're saying, the wisdom of this is okay. This is not so okay. Like I have an issue with this, but not. So it's the rupture repair kind of from attachment theory in a way where we can circle back and I'm still present with you, not abandoning you, not rejecting you. But we're holding this space together and we're teaching each other how to be relational in real time in this therapeutic environment. It's not just like I'm telling you what to do, or, you know, as a, as a therapist and, and you're getting all of that. Um, yeah. you
1: talk- well, I wrote, I wrote this book called Advice Not Given, which was yeah. trying, trying to talk about that, you know, which is actually full of advice um but the
0: which is, right, which is right here which is the latest one which yeah. i recommend and i uh i, I recommend it it's great
1: <laughs> yeah no i didn't mean i wasn't trying to pitch it i'm just like uh, um but that that notion of uh, how much as a therapist uh, can you how much advice can you give and when does giving the advice get in the way and how much advice do people really want um, I started to find that actually I'm, I give advice freely and mostly people don't want it and don't take it. So that kind of freed me up to give a little more because people take what they need and, they, and leave the rest, you know?
0: Right. That's the 12-step saying. Um, we, you know, you talk a lot about trauma. The trauma of everyday life, I think, is, uh, is one of your titles. And um, I love that title because it sort of talks about in a way... Um, post-traumatic stress is just being part of what we are dealing with Um, and it doesn't have to necessarily be from a catastrophe like a car accident or or yeah
1: well what I was trying to say with that was not to diminish uh, what we call the big T traumas that um, that not everyone has to face you know like Uh, uh, rape or war or uh, terrorist things or shootings or what you know I mean there are really horrible things that happen to people Um, but I I think the point I was trying to make there was that we tend the those of us to whom those things don't happen tend to uh, out of self-protection try to uh, keep ourselves uh, insulated from The those other kinds of traumas, so that we we make a division um, as if we can't really understand how anyone could deal with those things, and that shuts off the empathy. You you know, when really we're all going to face some kind of threat, you know, to our physical integrity, even if it's only through illness and eventual death. So the kinds of even extreme traumas that people face are just, you know, they're extreme examples of what we all are going to uh, undergo. Not that we want to, but, but uh, we will have to at some point. So we don't have to close our hearts off quite so much to, uh, you know, those people who are really suffering in, in ways that we're not. So was, there was something there that I was trying to get at
0: yeah no i love that because you're normalizing the fact that you know we all have been um most of us anyway maybe a few not but um most have been uh wounded in some way even in ways that are maybe invisible like i I often use the example like sound is invisible but that doesn't mean that it's not happening
1: yeah so like yeah i quoted this guy i quoted this guy phil clay who was an, an iraq veteran and came back and wrote a very good book about uh uh, what it was like to be in the war there, and he talked about um, people would come up to him and say things like, "I can't imagine what you went through," and that even a friend of his who had been um, uh, sexually molested uh, said to him, "You know, I can't imagine what you've been through," and he was saying that that's no help. You know, those kinds of people are trying to be compassionate; they're trying to be generous. You know, uh, but that that's no help. That what that what really helped was being able to talk about uh, in a relational way what he did go through and to, uh, to be heard and understood uh, by other people who have had other things happen to them and mm-hmm. have tried to cope with it in a similar way. You know, the main way that we cope with anything even a little bit traumatic is by dissociating ourselves from the intense feelings. And uh, we're scared of those feelings and uh, a lot of what happens in therapy and in Buddhist meditation is that we're making room to bring uh, the, the capacity for those feelings to the tolerance for those feelings to bring that back.
0: Yeah, I love that because what you're actually saying is here's an invitation for everyone who hasn't had the big T trauma to sort of step into the fold so that we can become more uh, yeah. um, relational beings that we as well. We that's going to
1: help us when we do step into our own traumas. You know, if we if we haven't spent our whole lives, you know, then the Buddhist story, the Buddha's father Uh, tried to uh, protect him for 29 years from any sign of old age illness and death, because the Buddha's mother actually died when he was a week old. So uh, there he was in the palace, you know, never having seen it. And that didn't help him. Then suddenly, you you know, when he was first exposed to the actual suffering that is inherent to the human condition, that prompted him on on his quest. And, uh, you know, are trying to live our whole lives uh, protecting ourselves and, you know, from uh, the inevitability of things and from the suffering that's all around us, you know, those poor children being separated from their parents at the border. And we're like, oh, okay, I guess we have to do this, you know, to prevent uh, 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 too many people slipping through, you know, closing our hearts in that way, that's not going to help us when eventually we have to be separated from our children, from our loved ones, you know, which will happen, That you know, happens to everybody.
0: And I love how you're circling out to the macro and to the wider world, because that's really, I think, what the whole um, invitation is for therapy and for uh, meditation really is to do the self-inquiry so that we can then show up in a way that has a more um, balanced and more uh, open presence.
1: Well, there's a, there's a temptation to use it all just to insulate ourselves, you know, to not pay attention to the news, to not pay attention to the problems in the world, just to go to a, uh, a transcendent place, you know, within, within ourselves. But that's, um, that's a kind of defensive use of, uh, Um, Of meditation, of spirituality, of of bliss, of joy, uh, you you know, that uh, ultimately, I don't think that's the point.
0: Yeah, I think it was Van Jones last year that said, you can't silo your spirituality or your happiness, you know, like, well, you can
1: actually, you can, and many people do, but, but Van Jones, good for him to uh, point it out how, you know, how much people want to use it that way.
0: Yeah, he was basically saying, "Release the corn!" <laughs> you know, yeah. everyone's yeah. starving. We yeah. need to be fed. Yeah. Um, I know that the time is 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 getting less um, because I know you you work with uh, folks in a clinical setting. Can you briefly touch on uh, the role of different medications or antidepressants and whether or not? Oh,
1: sure. Uh, sure. I mean, I'm a psychiatrist, which means I went to medical school, which means I can give drugs. Um, if I think it'll be helpful to people. And um, I always think about, you know, in the um, Tibetan Buddhist uh, tankas in the, in the paintings there, are these beautiful ones of the Medicine Buddha. The medicine Buddha is a blue Buddha who sits with these big vats of medicinal herbs and pills and so on, and flowering ambrosias uh, in front of him. Uh, uh, wanting to give uh, solace, you know, wanting to give medicine to uh, uh, suffering humanity. So, we're fortunate in this uh, time and place to have maybe three medicines that actually help a few people. Uh, you know, medicines for anxiety, medicines for depression, medicines for bipolar disorder, uh, medicines for psychosis. And um, uh, so I always see the use of those as, uh, uh, you know, when it's going to help somebody, when I feel it might help somebody as like an instrument of the medicine Buddha. And I try to talk to people. A lot of people come to see me, Buddhist teachers and so on, who also might be anxious or depressed uh, and kind of uh, have a negative view of the medicines, feeling that they should be able to do it all themselves. Uh, I always try to talk to them from that point of view, you know. Um, On the other hand, there's this yearning that a lot of people have to just be able to take a pill and make everything better. And uh, that that yearning got attached to Prozac when Prozac first came out. It's, you know, people wish that the antidepressants would do more than they can do. They don't really do much if you're not depressed or if you don't have some kind of chronic anxiety. Um, So a lot of people took them and just got side effects from them. And uh, that same kind of yearning you can feel these days around mindfulness. You you know, people are hoping that mindfulness is a kind of medicine that uh, they can just swallow in a, in a, uh, uh, a workshop and then it will fix them. And um, unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, only only very few people who have instantaneous enlightenment uh, can be fixed like that. So, um, trying yeah. to answer your question, uh, no, yeah, I give no. the pills. I give the pills if I think they'll help, and the, the, there's no real way to know if they'll help with uh, unless you try them. So you have to be very careful with them you know, start very slow, do it with someone who knows the side effects. There's a few people who, uh, if you give them an antidepressant, it actually will make them worse. And uh, uh, a lot of the uh, general practitioners uh, don't understand that. And so people can, uh, uh, you know, have bad side effects. And uh, if you just take them off medicine right away, they feel better. Uh, But if you stay on it for too long, they can really get get aggravated uh, kinds of symptoms. So... You know, it helps to have the medical training a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. And, and, and tailing on that, and then we'll close out. My last part about that is how much of this um, in terms of, um, you know, we talk about mindfulness, we talk about therapy as sort of being we think of it anyway, is of the mind, but a lot of stuff is now shifting to include more somatic uh, orientations uh, and um, trauma being stored in the body or energy being locked in. How does that um, sit with you from where you are? and um, also how does it relate or not to what you understand about Buddhist traditions and the meditation practices that have been around for thousands of years?
1: Yeah. Well, we tend to see the body and the mind as two separate things, but uh, actually they're connected, you know? Um, so uh, all the uh, neurotransmitters that are found in the brain are also found in the intestines. You, you know, the, the nervous system goes from the brain into the body, so of course, Uh, emotional experiences stored in the body as well as in our memories. You know, it comes up in the body as well as in our dreams. Um, What I found is that a lot of the uh, somatically trained people uh, are not trained um, uh, cognitively or mentally uh, the the way um, uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapists are trained. So they they can get into deep relationships with people where they're pulling on uh, all the stored emotion, but they don't really have the training to handle what comes up interpersonally when you're touching someone at that deep level. So the, there's, a real, there's a real need, like in every uh, uh, duality and every polarity, there's a real need for balance. And uh, the, uh, a lot of the psychotherapists, you know, are only coming from a, um, from a mental place. And so have neglected the, uh, the role of the body that, you know, pioneers like Wilhelm Reich and Fritz Perls a little bit in Gestalt therapy were trying to bring that back. Uh, so there's a whole world of therapists who are just, you know, working from up here. And then there's a whole world of uh, body-oriented therapists who are just working over here. And uh, eventually, eventually, uh, you, you know, we'll get to a place where we can do both
0: where it's all getting to a point where it's integrated. I think that's what they say is really um, well-being is having a cohesive narrative or integration, I think, Dan. Yeah,
1: or, or that it's up to the individual. May, maybe the therapist doesn't have to be uh, so integrated, in, you know, but the, the individual uh, has to find a way to make use of body-centered Practices to make use of psychotherapy to make use of meditation that it, that we 're not a simple puzzle to unpack you know, and we need all of these disciplines and to to think that one guru, one therapist, you know one teacher uh, can unlock the whole thing for us, I think probably is uh, mistaken you yeah know? It,
0: would, it would be nice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's what you know it would be it would be or maybe maybe that's how people get in trouble you know like did you did you see that netflix uh, documentary about rajneesh called wild wild country
0: oh did no should i check it out or not
1: oh you should definitely check it out i mean that was like you, you know people thinking that one person one group one way had the answer and uh and it got a lot of people deep into uh, their own unworked through uh, stuff, you know. Well, yeah.
0: uh, I mean, I I think that that's a great note to end on. Is is that um. You know, I often have joked that by the time I finished all my practices, half my day would be gone. I'd be doing my mindful writing, my yoga, my meditation, my 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 exit, my walking, my you know, all of these different things. My positive neuroplasticity, my gratitude list, my whatever it is. You yeah, know, no, it just
1: comes down to physical therapy. By the, by the end, you're just doing physical therapy.
0: <laughs> I just like you know, I'm like, oh really? Do I do I really need this much help? And you then do, I'm saying yeah. Well, and, and, and the analogy that I say is like, well, maybe I'm a sunflower and I'm not a cactus. You know, like I'm just the person that needs more of these things. And to the degree that
1: I can do more of them, the more balanced I'll feel. And to the degree yeah. I mean, you're saying what I'm saying. I mean, I think every person has to find their own discipline. And the, everything is a discipline. And we, we all don't need everything, but we're all on an individual path where we have to, you know, do our best to figure it out. And we keep. You know, making mistakes, using up one thing, finding the next thing, Uh, or sometimes, like for me, the Buddhist practice has stayed vital, you know, for since I was uh, 18, 19, 20 years old. So either that means I'm a very slow learner or else, uh, you know, there's something really there.
0: Have you met anyone who is enlightened in your opinion?
1: In my opinion, uh, there's people who I would like to believe are enlightened who, uh, who I've met, sure, yeah.
0: Well, okay. But I
1: could be wrong.
0: Well, I know, in your experience, in your opinion. Usually the
1: enlightened people won't tell you. So, you, uh, so it's more in the feel of, the, uh, of what the interaction is like. Uh, and so there could be, you know, uh, the enlightenment could come in a hidden package uh it's rare that the uh, you, you know the, that the guru uh, uh in the rolls royce is actually uh, uh the enlightened being that you're seeking you know <laughs>
0: That's so funny. I think I'm gonna have to leave it there. Reminds me of something Krishna Das says, and he says, you know, when they say they know it, and you started with this, when they say they know what they're talking about, run in the other direction in a way, you know, again, paraphrasing. Well, Dr. Mark Epstein, you know, you're um, really a gift to so many people and um, lovely that you do look at things with these multiple, um, you know, perspectives, which I think is so valuable because uh, again, um, you know, there's there's different ways of looking at things. This is uh, Advice Not Given, uh, which is the latest. And again, like I said, Open to Desire, Thoughts Without a Thinker. Uh, go to your local bookstore, Amazon. I'm sure you can find them. Dr. Mark Epstein, thanks so much for joining us on Wise Girls. welcome.
1: Today. Thank you so much. My
0: pleasure. Really appreciate it. Take care.
1: Bye.